you know what? I love Christ Journey Church. I love it when we get together. I love when we have opportunity to share space together, whether it's at Kindle Campus, Gables Campus, or you're joining us online across the nation, around the world, wherever you're making your connection, we are praying that God's grace will invade your space today. And this is a special day because we're beginning a new series. I'm excited about our new series. The title is The Making of a Man. And ladies, Sisters, let me assure you that title is not to leave you out. There are so many takeaways in this series that you're going to find ready application for in your lives. But since we just finished our family series and we're on the threshold of Father's Day, it seems like a good idea to me to take a closer look at manhood. It's been a while since we've dealt with the topic, and yet it continues to make news uh, almost daily for all the wrong reasons. Like what? Violence, misogyny, greed, neglect, sexually toxic behaviors. I mean, even the idea that there's kind of something wrong, something about masculinity that in itself is oppressive and toxic. This is a dangerous thought. I mean, think of this. If your son were to ask you, what makes for a real man? What would you say? If your daughter is starting to date, what do you want her to know about a real man? Maybe a friend has come to you and said, you know, I've met Mr. Right. How do you engage the conversation? I mean, is there even such a thing as Mr. Right. By the way, I saw this sign. It said, I finally met Mr. Right. I just didn't realize his first name was always. How do you define a real man? Is it somebody who's always right? What makes for a real man? Um, does being born male mean that you're going to know what makes for a real man? I mean, how do you define real manhood? Dr. Carl Jung, psychologist, said there are four archetypes of mature masculine, king, warrior, magician, and lover. Joseph Campbell lists 12 stages in what he calls the hero's journey. In his book, Fathered by God, John Eldridge, who's written on the topic, says that the masculine journey moves from boyhood to cowboy to a warrior to lover to king to sage. Six stages of growth. What would you say makes for a real man? Now, I'm hoping you'd say, no, somebody's thinking, you know, clothes make for the man. Clothes make the man. Well, I'm hoping somebody would say, no, it has something to do with the dream that he's pursuing with the, uh, the dream that fuels his passion in life, that gets him up in the morning and keeps him going through the day. Dreams are not simply for sleeping at night. Dreams are drivers through the day. What dream, men, men, what dream is giving meaning to your daily life? I mean, that is calling you to rise up to your full potential and to step up into your manhood, to find your courage, to step up at home or at work. Is it finishing a degree? Maybe getting promoted or building a business or breaking a bad habit or make, be, becoming a better dad. Maybe it's having a more intimate marriage. 
Maybe your dreams, you would say, well, they're just now under construction. Or maybe for you, you, you're at the point where your dream is to move from success to significance, to move from simply making a profit to making a difference in the world. When Bob Buford's son tragically died at 17, Bob found himself, who had proven himself in, in his career, plenty of money, but he found himself facing the second half of his life with a new dream to move from success to significance. He writes about it in his book, Halftime. I would highly recommend this for any man connecting at any point in your life. A great clarifying exercise. Now, is that where you are? And then when I think of dreamers, I always think of Wilbur and Orville Wright. I mean, who dared to dream the dream of flight. Did you know, by the way, Apollo 11 took a piece of wood from the Wright Flyer, the first successful aircraft, Apollo 11 took a piece from that to the moon. The Library of Congress Dream of Flight exhibit tells of a night in 1908, a group of, of French aviation enthusiasts were honoring the Wright brothers in Paris and Wilbur was there and he said this, he said the honor was really a tribute to quote, an idea that has always impassioned mankind, close quote, recognizing this universal aspiration to fly, this dream to conquer the ocean of air, the desire to elevate oneself above one's environment. The perennial struggle of practically every civilization in history and that night, his comments seemed to suggest that instead of achieving this age-old dream, he and Orville were merely participants in an ancient and ongoing human struggle. The dream of rising above makes us all participants in an ancient and ongoing human struggle, doesn't it? And if anyone in scripture's story qualifies as a dreamer that is participating in an ongoing struggle, it's Joseph. Joseph, whose story is told in Genesis, the last 20 chapters. Uh, he's also listed in Hebrews 11, Faith's Hall of Fame. And for good reason, it's quite a story. His mother died giving birth to his little brother, Joseph was number 11 of 12 brothers. His 10 older brothers betrayed him and literally sold him off as a slave. We'll get more about the story later. Then they misled their father to believe that he had died, killed by wild animals. And as Joseph was growing up, his father Jacob was a schemer and deceiver. He would have witnessed this. And then a little later, he saw his daddy's life change after an encounter with the living God. Now, I don't know what you call your father, Daddy, Papa, Poppy, Pops, Dada, whatever, that's who we're talking about. Joseph is watching his dad as he grows and changes. He watches him throw away the false gods of his idols of the past. And he watches him as he takes on the new identity of, that God gave him, the name Israel. Now, he's got multiple half-brothers, and half-sisters by three other women from his father's checkered past. Now, this is a family with drama 
as you unpack the story, it becomes clear. Now, by the way, if you've ever wondered about polygamy, guys, one man with several female partners, here's a case study right here. It's not easy and it's not pretty. That's what we learned. One wife, his first wife, he doesn't love. The wife that he does love is her sister. I'm wondering how that's working out at home. What do you think? The other kids come from two of his maidservants. So uh, if any man in the making here uh, has thought that he'd like to have more business in the bedroom, there's a warning alarm that's going off right here. It won't be as you imagine. I mean, that's not a dream. <laughs> that's a nightmare. And the story makes it pretty clear. In this family system, deception, jealousy, and hiding truth are a practiced art. But that was the past. Now, around age six, now I'm going to unpack it a little bit more. Around age six, Joseph at 17, or excuse me, at, at age six, Joseph's dad wrestles through this in-your-face encounter with God. And then a little older Joe, as I mentioned, gets to watch his father get rid of the false gods that have defined his life following idols. And then when he's just a little bit older, his mother dies giving birth to his little brother. And then at 17, we pick the story up in Genesis 37, verse two, Joseph at 17 was tending flocks with his brothers from all those different mothers. And he brought his father a bad report about them. In other words, Joseph's a tattletale. He rats him out about something. Probably doesn't leave his brothers feeling all warm and fuzzy about him, do you think? But that, and then the fact that Israel, as we're told, verse three, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Dad plays favorites and he makes this richly ornamented robe to declare his favoritism publicly, the coat of many colors. Broadway calls it Joseph's amazing technicolor dream coat. Verse four says, when his brothers see their father favoring Joe, then they burn with hatred toward him. They can't say anything kind. In other words, they become verbal bullies and they're always putting him down. They're always jabbing him with words, voicing their resentment and their spite. And yet into the dysfunction of this family dynamic comes a dream. And Joseph tells his brothers, listen to this. Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain in the field one day when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood straight up. And all your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Is that crazy? Then it's like his brothers say, you think you're going to rule over us? That's what's crazy. You're the one who's crazy. And they hated him all the more. In this story, Joseph has two strikes against him before he even has that crazy dream. So three strikes and what? Well, but then look at this. Guess what? He has another dream. <laughs> and he tells his brothers. Ah, I'm thinking, how smart is that? Hey, listen, I had another dream. And this time, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. <laughs> and this one tweaks his dad, who says, what? 
You think your parents and your brothers are all going to come down and bow to the ground in front of you? It's like, what have you been smoking, boy? And then it says, father kept the matter to himself. But the brothers, oh my goodness, the brothers, it's like putting jealousy gas on the fire of resentment that was already burning, the fire of their hatred. Now, why did Joseph do that? Why did he tell them? I'm thinking maybe because he's just a naive, spoiled young man. Or maybe it's just the foolish arrogance of a, uh, of a conceited adolescent, of a short-sighted teenager, you know, who really can't see beyond his own nose. But whatever, it graded his brothers to the point they conspire against him. They want to get rid of him. And um, they set a trap for him for this unsuspecting 17-year-old. And sure enough, he doesn't see it coming. The plan is let's get him away from home. Then let's take him, let's kill him. Let's throw him in a well. And then let's tell dad that an animal devoured him. And then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Reuben, his oldest brother, tries to talk the other brothers out of it, convince them not to kill him. Let's just leave him in a well, but let's not shed any blood. And Reuben's thinking to himself privately, you know, I'll just come back and take him home later. And the brothers agree. They strip off his fancy robe. They throw him into an empty cistern. And as they're sitting down to eat, a caravan on its way to Egypt comes up, camels loaded down with exotic items, spices. And one of the brothers says, hey, what good is it to kill our brother when we could sell him and make a profit. So they pull Joseph up out of the cistern and they sell him as a slave for 20 shekels of silver. That's eight ounces, about $100. Then they take his robe, they dip it in goat's blood, they take it home to dad and say, look dad, what we, look what we found. Do you recognize this? And of course dad does and says, my son has been devoured by some beast. And then he tanks into deep grief. So deep, in fact, that after many days and many attempts by his many sons and daughters, many daughters to comfort him, dad not only resists their comfort, he refuses it. And he says essentially this, this could be the end of me. I mean, this is it. I'm going down. Verse 35, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. Now, it may have been that the old man's feeling like he's going to die of heartbreak and of grief. And I bet the brothers didn't see that coming. You know, they were thinking, we're going to get rid of our problem. But when actually what they had done was saddle themselves and their family with a father's deep grief and sorrow and a family secret that they now have to hide from that day forward. It doesn't say in the story, but I'm thinking that these brothers probably had some kind of confidentiality pact. You know, an agreement where they kind of went around everybody and said, now nobody tells, right? Nobody tells, right? If you do, payback won't be pretty. Family secrets can be very costly. This one cost them their father. 
And as we'll see later in the series, the secret haunts them for years. Family secrets are like that. You know what they say in Alcoholics Anonymous? You're as sick as your secrets. And here the cover-up begins. The sickness is present. The masking of shame, the hiding, the rationalizing, the deception. And uh, meanwhile, meanwhile, verse 36, down in Egypt, the caravan that bought Joseph sells him. Sells him off to a guy named Potiphar, who's a ranking official under Pharaoh. Some thinks he's the head of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's secret police. And then with that cliffhanger, we come to the episode, the end of the episode of the novella. Now, what are we to make of this? Now, some lessons just like they shout out to me. See if you see them. That they apply to every one of us, but especially men in the making. For instance, this one, the making of a man begins in an imperfect family system of origin. True for Joseph, true for you. Whatever your dream, there is a family system at play. Now, maybe you don't feel like you had a good start. Maybe uh, your family had troubles. Maybe there was sibling rivalry. Maybe there was jealousy. Maybe there was favoritism. Whether you were the firstborn or a middle child or the baby of the family, we've all got a family system at play. Some of our families know the tragedy of personal loss of a loved one, of a mother, or of a child. So what I'm saying is there's a sense that that we all know somehow Joseph's story is my story too. Joseph's story is our story. Life is hard, life's not fair, and families are not perfect, and we all relate. We all come from an imperfect family system and we all have father wounds. So so what? Well, so if that sounds familiar, don't be discouraged. That's part of the message of the book. Later in the series, we're gonna see how to move from surviving our family systems into thriving uh, and overcoming the limitations. I'm thinking of uh, the movie Lion King now. You remember this, perhaps, where the young lion Simba is heir to the throne of his father, Mufasa. He is the favored son. But his wicked uncle, Scar, wants the throne for his own. So he murders Mufasa, lies to Simba, and shames him into blaming himself. There's the family secret. Simba is trapped in his past in a secret shame from a family of dysfunction. Second lesson, the making of a man means making your way through secrets and shame. The brothers feel disrespected in the story, but instead of bringing it into the light, instead of bringing it to the father, they conspire in secret in a cover-up to do something destructive. Now, As a result, they're stuck in the shame trap. Men, you ever caught yourself thinking, saying, or doing something destructive because you felt disrespected? Is that the pattern? When a man feels contempt from another, 
it translates into shame. And in the story, it's that way. In our story, it's that way. And then guess what? Shame begets shame. And the next thing you know, you're stuck. And you don't always know how to get out. So what do you do? You keep it hidden. You feel trapped. In the series, we're going to see how God can take us through our shame into hope. And it doesn't matter what your secret or what your past, God's grace can meet you in that place and can lift you by a dream full of hope. Third lesson, the making of a man flows from God's dream for your life. God's dream for your life. God has a dream for your life. Now, at first, you may not realize that the dream that you are trying on is from God. Actually, uh, in Genesis 37, nothing in the chapter says that these dreams Joseph had came from God. It only says that Joseph has had these dreams. So here he is as an older teenager trying to work through the raw material in his life. Maybe you don't know what God's dream is for your life either. What do you do? Well, Joseph starts with the dream at hand, with the dream that's rising up in him. He said, but pastor, you don't know my story. Maybe not, but I do know this. A setback can actually be a setup for a comeback. Now we've said that before from this platform, but it's true. And not only is it true, it can be true for you. A setback can be a setup for a comeback. And we surely see that in his life. More about that next week, by the way. So what's it mean? It means don't let your mistakes disqualify you. Your mistakes don't qualify you from God's, disqualify you from God's dream. You trust God and let liftoff happen from him beyond what you can see. Dare to dream. And uh, you will discover that God's dream is larger. God has a larger dream for your life. And God's not done. Listen, the chapter comes to a close. Joseph is in Egypt, but you know what? God's not done. In Egypt, right. I mean, Joseph may have been humiliated by being uh, exposed on a slave block at an auction. But can you imagine what's happening in this young shepherd's life from a country family, finding himself now in the capital city of the most advanced nation on earth? Joseph, born somewhere around 1915, scholars believe, BC, is now seeing the Sphinx with his own eyes. Very first time, Sphinx would have been built some 600 years before. Those early pyramids were already standing before him. The, the temple, the great palaces of Pharaoh. Now, back home, it may have looked like stuff is out of control. And now he's there as the result of that dysfunction. But as will become clear in the series, God is at work in the making of this man in spite of appearances and against all odds. Brothers, you ever felt like your dream has been hijacked? Like uh, something has just stolen it away, threatened it. Every man in the making does. I believe that's part of the point of this story. There are dream killers loose in this world. Some are loose in our families. So what should you do? 
Well, stay tuned. To be continued. By the way, don't you hate it when that comes up at the end of your favorite show? To be continued, but that's where we are in the story. Maybe that's where you are right now. Dreams are dangerous. Dream killers are too. What does that mean? You should stop dreaming? No, stay tuned. It's ongoing. No way, dare to dream. How many times did Wilbur and Orbel write, try and fail to take flight before they had success? Including, I mean, did they give up? No. And now every time someone boards a flight to anywhere, even the moon, they pay tribute to a dream come true. On the other hand, if you are living for your dream as if your dream is your God, then every time your dream dies, so do you. But if you're following God as your God and he is giving shape to your dream, what a man in the making. So let me ask you, where are you in your journey to manhood, brother? Are you, uh, are you still in the arrogance of youth? Are you somehow stuck in the dysfunction of shame? Listen, if, dream is, if your dream is the road to your future, then uh, learning to drive in that road means you want to avoid arrogance as a ditch on the left and shame as a ditch on the right. Are you stuck in a family secret? Are you hurting from a troubled past? What kind of family system did you come from? What are you currently living in? What are your children soaking up from you? All these questions rise out of this story. And I'm telling you right now, none of them are too much for God and the dream that he has for your life. God is at work, even in your Egypt. Can I ask you, are you open to letting him make you more of a man and take you to the next level? Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for the story of Joseph. We thank you as painful as it is to join his story and see ours in it in so many places. And I'm praying for every person who's been listening through whatever filter they bring, that your spirit will speak clearly and poignantly about the bigness and largesse of your dream for their life. And then lifting us and taking us to the next level by your grace. Especially Lord, we pray for our men, our brothers, our fathers, our sons, knowing the influence of a man's life affecting all of those around. And we invite your blessing to meet us as each of us seek to let you make us the men you envision us to be. Now, may I ask you, our heads are still bowed for a moment. If you'd like to begin the spiritual journey, every time we gather, we offer a prayer that is a first step of faith. This is it. And if it resonates in your heart, you join me in it, would you? 
Lord Jesus, I believe that you came as God from God to model manhood. But more than that, to live a, a life of redemptive grace that when offered on the cross would purchase salvation and offer forgiveness that could cleanse from shame and restore hope. So Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the man for me. And I am trusting what you did on the cross to forgive my sins, what you did as you rose from the dead to come alive in me. I am turning from my way to your way and ask you to grace me as I follow. Come into my life, lead me as I seek to know and do your will. Now, our head's still bowed just for a moment longer, but if you prayed with me to open your life to Christ and would let me ask God's blessing upon your next steps of faith, would you simply raise your hand wherever you're seated, wherever you're joining us? Kendall Campus, Gables Campus, Church Online. There's an orange banner right there across the bottom of the screen. You can click and we will be joining you in prayer as well. Lord Jesus, for every hand raised and every heart opened and every step of faith being taken, we pray now that according to the promise of your word, your Holy Spirit would assure each one that the presence of your salvation has found welcome in their life, that you would grant peace and joy and encouragement as we take the next step of faith together. In your name, amen.